Hello everybody, I am back. I took a little time off to refresh and reflect on the show, but I am back and ready to bring you a ton of new episodes. Thank you so much for all your emails and messages about the show. I read every single one of them and I learn from your feedback. Your input is what helps me pick my guests, ask my questions, and make the show better overall for everybody listening. So, thank you. Thank you to all of you out there who are listening. I truly appreciate the support. And without further ado, let's get into the episode. As you start looking at the books and you actually start to care about the business, you realize, hey, like, it's not sustainable. I can't make a table for $1,500 and, you know, maintain, like, what our ethics are. Hello and welcome to Building a Furniture Brand with Ethan Abramson, the show that talks about the business behind the furniture business. On this episode, I sit down with Paul Mensel, owner of the Philadelphia-based furniture company, Philadelphia Table Company. From rock star to furniture maker, some people take interesting journeys to get to their destination. But once Paul locked his mind onto his furniture business, he never looked back. Growing from a part-time Etsy store to a six-person company, Paul has turned what was once side work into a sustainable business, producing award-winning residential and commercial furniture since 2014, all with environmental responsibility at the forefront of his business. Follow along as we talk about when to say no to customers, building a team, the environmental impacts of the furniture industry, and much more. So let's start the episode and hear about Paul's story in his own words. I grew up in a family that was like always pretty handy. My dad always did woodworking projects around the house. He was always, you know, if there was something that had to get done, he would be the one who does it. I mean, he wouldn't even hire someone to change his oil. So I learned how to change my oil, change the brakes on my car, uh, finish a basement, add a porch, add a deck. So I was always around handy stuff. Um, but you know, I ended up going to college for chemistry and physics and, uh, midway through that I was, I joined a rock band. Um, and as I graduated, after I graduated, um, college barely, um, cause we were busy touring, we got signed to RCA records. So, uh, I was in a band signed to RCA. We spent a lot of time on the road and recording. Um, and you know, while you're doing that, you need to find all sorts of side hustles. So I was everything from like a teacher to, you know, landscaper to contractor to like whatever, kind of just odd jobs to cover bills while I was home so I could, you know, be away. Um, so I couldn't really hold down like an actual nine to five. So um, eventually my wife and I, well, my she was my girlfriend at the time. We moved into uh, an apartment and we were kind of picking out furniture and I saw a dining table that we kind of wanted. And I was like, you know what, I think I could I could build that table. Um, So I kind of took a weekend and went to my dad's garage and built essentially the dining table that we were using. Um, And friends would come over and ask, hey, where'd you get that? And it was, you know, it was always like, I built it. So it started being like friends and then friends of friends. And all of that was happening while I was like still like simultaneously on tour and traveling. Um, so my wife convinced me to open an Etsy shop. So I'd be on the road for six weeks and, you know, I'd be like playing a show in like Toronto or San Francisco or something. And I'd I'd look at my phone, I'd be like, sweet, I got an Etsy sale. Um, I could afford rent, you know, this month, which was awesome. Um, so, I mean, I was making some money with music, but it was never, 
you know, a ton of money. It wasn't really enough to pay the bills. So after tour, after recording in LA, I'd come home and like build a table or two. Um, I'd bring my brother to help me or whoever was able to help build anything at the time. Um, and it just started like one piece at a time like that. You know, I'd be on the road and I'd sell one piece or I'd sell two or sometimes it'd be, you know, three and slowly started to increase. Uh, one of the times actually I w- we were away for long enough that actually I had to have my dad build it for me, <laughs> one of the Etsy orders. Um, so that was that was pretty hilarious. But slowly as the band started to decline, um, we got off RCA. Basically, the um, furniture company started to ramp up. So at that point, I needed to hire people um, around me to basically help build because you can only physically build so much by yourself. So um, I started hiring people. It started with one employee, and now we're up to six. I started in my dad's garage, and then from there, rented just a really small 300-square-foot garage in South Philly that had no bathroom. We were walking to the local coffee shop to use the bathroom. We had a, we had a, lot, of, a lot of coffee in those days. Um, and then slowly upgraded to you know an 800-square-foot garage, and that was in a neighborhood. And we were running planers and sanders and stuff. So we got quickly got kicked out of there because we were too noisy. And finally found the warehouse that we're in today, which is about 8,000 square feet. And that's where we've been building since. I love that even before you actually had your company, you already had the the having to deal with lead times because you were away and you had to build that into your products and you were dealing with employees with your dad having to come in and and take over and you were you were already dealing with all of the issues that in a couple of years you would really deal with as a real furniture company but you were you were setting the stage to to make that happen right from the start. And that that really must have primed you to be ready when you did take that leap to remember that lead times and employees and making sure you're keeping track of everything really was at the forefront of your mind. Yeah, I mean, like, it was really like a necessity, like you said. Uh, and the other thing that was like really nice about uh, the way I did it was I just took a pictures of the original table I built and post it on Etsy. So people would click buy. So I was already getting the money before I had to order any materials. So there was never any out of pocket. I was always like building, you know, two orders. Um, so I was really able to, it was like pretty low risk. It wasn't like I was like building, you know, 10 tables and then trying to sell those 10 tables. Um, so I kind of learned a little bit about that too early on, which was nice. And the cost and the company has always been a built to order. So like that kind of queue time is in there. I mean, the clients half the time wouldn't even know I was on tour. I would just be like, hey, it takes six weeks to build. And then I'd come home and like build it in like three days. It's kind of like a secret of having a furniture company is lead times aren't really the time it takes you to build something. It's the time it takes you to work that into your schedule. You might have an eight week lead time, but you're building everything in a week. Lead times are built in to give you as the furniture company owner time to process get everything done and and make sure that you can complete orders in time it's not how you it's not how long you have to build it and people forget about that when they're when they're setting up their lead times yeah exactly so like for us it's a it's like the queue time is really where you're spending most of the time and for our company we're about three to four months is is our queue time Um, And really, like you said, I mean, most pieces will take a week. There's a few really elaborate pieces that'll take, you know, two weeks. And there's some pieces that take a day or two. 
Um, but overall, like the general lead time really is the queue. It's just waiting in line to get, you know, to get your order made. Let's go back to the beginning. Now, you were in a rock band and you know from that that a name is important. Name recognition, getting your yourself out there is very important. So when you went to actually pick your own name for the company, what what went into that thinking? How did you decide on that name and how's it been working for you? Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, you're right. I learned a lot of uh, things, you know, through the music industry, like, uh, marketing, um, like hustle, um, you know, social media, all that stuff's like super important because you're selling songs at the end of the day. So the only difference now is instead of selling songs, I'm selling tables and furniture. Right. Uh, and the, the first name was actually South Philly barn, which was just some random name I came up with. I mean, it made sense because I was trying to like marry, like that was when the farm tables were really big. So I was trying to do farm tables mixed with like a modern flair. So I was like, okay, cool. Like it's an urban farm kind of deal thing. Um, But then eventually we moved uh, shops and I I was talking to my brother and he was just kind of like, dude, he's like, you should just change the name to, he's like, we mainly make tables. So why don't you just change the name to Philadelphia Table Company? And I was like, dude, like that's the most genius thing ever because it's just SEO written all over it. I mean, it's, it's hard as far as like, being uh getting outside of like the philadelphia area a little bit but i mean for the seo part of it like that's been like incredibly helpful i could see how it definitely labels you as a specific place type company but it also grounds you in the sense that that people people understand your background people can say oh that's a furniture company from philly even if they're outside of Philly, but they, they have a better understanding. So not only is it giving the, the idea of what you do, building tables, building furniture, but it gives you a place in this wide world of the internet where somebody types in table and they have no idea if it's US made, you know, internationally made, they have no idea what's happening. So it, it gives you that ability to be more understood even before anyone hits your about you page. Yeah. And there was, there's this company called Detroit Denim that I thought was just always a a really cool name. Um, And I'm like, you know, I would wear Detroit Denim, even though I'm not from Detroit. And I was like, I just thought that was like kind of cool to be like, you know, maybe Philadelphia becomes the place known for like the best tables, right? Like, so it's just a matter of like, like you said, just putting it a place stamp on it. You really have a a driving force behind your company of natural made furniture. And by natural made, obviously the wood is a natural product, but the materials that you're finishing it with, some of the materials that you're adding to the wood, the whole ethos of your company is really an eco-friendly, natural vibe company. And a lot of companies say that, and a lot of companies will go out and put that on their press and sort of bandstand on that. But not a lot of companies actually do that because it hurts your bottom line. It, it really makes things more expensive and harder to do because non-natural products are quicker, easier, and less expensive. Why did that mean so much to you at the beginning when you started your company and continuing to build your products even to this day and how have you gone about using that all natural idea to 
help your company and help your growth rather than hinder your bottom line? Yeah. So, I mean, it, it is something that I always started off with. I mean, I wanted to offer something that was better um, than what everybody else was doing. I'm an outdoorsman by heart. I surf, I hike, I boat, I fish. I do all the stuff that's like, you know, outside nature stuff. So for me, the environment always came first. Um, and then in 2016, my wife was diagnosed with breast cancer. So it really forced me to double down on that and really pay attention to, hey, what actually, what does it actually mean to be green? What does it actually be, mean to be non-toxic? Um, so like to speak to the eco part, we actually are members of 1% for the planet. So that means we give 1% of our gross proceeds. Um, we actually donate to One Tree Planted. And for me, that was always a huge thing. Like I'm like, if I'm going to be here um, and doing a business, you know, it's just kind of like doing your penance. There's no way you're going to ever be 100% sustainable. That's never going to work. Um, and actually, you know, a big uh, idol of mine is Yvonne Chouinard from Patagonia, and he has a book called Let My People Go Surfing, um, which is a really great book. And he describes uh, how he ran his business and the ethos and everything behind that. So that's been like a big driving force behind why I care so much about it. And what we're actually doing is, is different. There's a lot of people and there's a lot of greenwashing going on. There's a lot of people, like you said, like saying that they're doing like na all natural but anything that has a catalyst finish in it, um, I mean, there are all kinds of finishes that have that, you know, conversion varnishes, polyurethanes, even some like hand wiped things. All that stuff is like releasing toxic fumes into the air as well as like into our lungs, really. Um, so all of our finish, uh, not, I mean, 98%, I mean, there are some projects where you have to use conversion varnish. There are some projects where you have to use polyurethane, but 98% of our products are finished with a tongue oil. I mean... Nakashima used that stuff, so you know it's legit. And we do commercial jobs with that. We do residential jobs with that. Um, and it's, you know, environmentally friendly. It's fine for us to breathe in because it's made from the tongue, tongue tree plant. Um, and we don't really, tr we try not to use much in terms of like sheet goods because sheet goods are uh, used formaldehyde in them, which off gas in people's homes. So it's just a big passion of ours. And I'm actually glad you touched on that because it's a, a big driving force behind what we do. I'm very familiar with 1% for the planet and what they do. And I have a lot of respect for that organization and, and everything that they've, they've helped businesses accomplish by giving, giving a, a large platform that's easy to work with and easy to give back. And I'm also very familiar with the idea of explaining to a client about furniture and off-gassing in their homes, because it's, becomes a family member. It's that piece of furniture is spending more time in your home than you are. It's never leaving. And you need to understand a little bit more about the background of that furniture and how it's made and what it's made with and everything that goes into it before you bring it into your home, because you're not just going to bring a random person into your home and have them live there forever, just like you're not going to bring yeah. a random piece of furniture into your home if you understand that there's different processes behind that. And I think that that is a very important thing for furniture makers to explain. You don't have to go overboard. You don't have to give a, a college level three semester class on how furniture is made, but explaining to the client a little bit of the background is a great way to make them not only become more understandable about the process, but also 
understand about the price and yeah. what goes into it and what sets your furniture apart from somebody else's. Yeah. And for me, uh, I mean, you, you, you touched upon like, you know, obviously it's going to affect the bottom line, but for me, it's a non-negotiable. Like if, if I can't be doing it the way this way, then I don't want to be in business. So I need to figure out a way around to do that. And a lot of times it means sometimes we don't get the bid because our projects, you know, might cost a little bit more. Uh, but at the end of the day, it's like staying true to my ethics and what I want to be putting out. Um, and again, it's just, it's something that's going in somebody's home. And I think you said it the best. It's basically another family member uh, that's going to be, that's going to be living there. Right. So, you know, the last thing I want to do is be bringing something toxic into somebody's home. So I, I just think it's something that not enough people are talking about within the furniture industry um, as far as like what these finishes really are doing to the environment and to us. Uh, I mean, if you have to be wrapped in a full gas mask suit, you know, if you look like you're trying to be on the moon when you're finishing a piece of furniture, I mean, there's something kind of off there. Everybody does their furniture their own way. Everybody runs their own business their own way. So I'm not going to lean one way or another, but I do hear what you're saying. And I know that if the person listening to this has those same type of feelings, then there is a road to go down for the more eco-conscious yeah, and I think a good, a good another good thing to talk about too, actually, is carbon storing. By all of us building these tables, and it's awesome that we have, there's so many people who are making furniture. Is like you know, anytime a, a tree dies, uh, you know, it starts to kind of off gas as it gets burned or whatever. Like it starts to create CO two. But by making pieces of furniture that last and preserving the wood, it's actually storing the carbon within the the table. So it's actually one of the most environmentally conscious things you could do, which is kind of just carbon bank by buying, you know, nice, solid wood pieces of furniture. You have a, a quote, and I'm, I'm going to paraphrase this from your website, but it's something along the lines of, we might not be the company for you. We like the idea of building you a table or building you a piece of furniture, but we do things our way and that might not necessarily be for you. And if that's the case, happy to refer you to somebody else and happy to part ways on friendly terms, but we might not be the company for you. How do you decide when you're talking to a client if the project that they're bringing to you is the right project, not only for you, but also for them working with you? How do you work that out in your mind and also with the client to decide if it's a good fit? Because you are going to be working together for many weeks, many months. And if the project goes through, then that piece is going to be living with them for hopefully many, many years to come. Yeah. I mean, so initially one of my goals was, uh, I mean, relatively recently, so this was about a year ago, I just said, Hey, I need to hit a certain profit margin. Um, and then the only way to do that was to like really bring the price up. I mean, when I first started the company, I was like, hey, I'm going to be a furniture company for the people. Like I'm going to make eco-friendly, sustainable furniture for everybody. But like as you start looking at the books and you actually start to care about the business, you realize, hey, like it's not sustainable. I can't make a table for $1,500 and, you know, maintain like what our ethics are. So like number one is, you know, price. You have to be able to kind of afford what we're doing. And I hate to say it that way, but that's just kind of what it is um, as far as like, you know, you're investing in a piece of furniture. So um, you have to be able to, it has to make sense for us financially. If it's not going to make sense for us financially, then it's not a project that we're going to jump into. 
Uh, and then another big thing for us too, I mean, to get on the technical side of it is we're very communication savvy. I mean, we're building a custom piece of furniture. Uh, if you can't respond, you know, to an email or a text in like a relatively fast timeline, it's just, it's not going to work out because that's how we're going to be communicating back and forth. We're building something from nothing and there's going to be game time decisions that we have to make the call about. So, I mean, those are kind of like the two main things. I mean, most of the time I, I love to say yes to projects, but uh, recently I've had to say no and, and that's that's been hard for me. And that's been something I've been really working on the past two years is getting used to having to say no, like, hey, this isn't the right project for us. The more successful you get as a company, it seems like the more no's you have to say. And it, it seems like a a strange position to put yourself in because you think, the more successful I am, the more projects I'm going to take. But sometimes you just can't scale that much. Sometimes it doesn't make sense mm -hmm. for your business to every single year add so many more people on to take all these projects. For some companies, it works. And those are the companies that scale up to 100, 200, 300 factory size people. But if you want to maintain a, a small to small to medium sized business, then you can't just keep scaling with what you think the customers want. You have to make sure your company is the right size for you for the good times, yes, but also for the times that orders stop coming in. Yeah. And I, I also am like have no interest in participating in the race to the bottom. I mean, we do a lot of restaurants, we do a lot of commercial and stuff, but I mean, you know, I'm not in the game of like being like, hey, can you do $20 cheaper? Can you do $30 cheaper? Like it's to the point where it's just like, hey, you're going to come to work with us because we are offering X, Y, and Z. And it's a matter of us sort of knowing what value we're bringing to them. And if it doesn't work out, it's just kind of like no hard feelings. I just don't want to participate in, in, that, in that game because I feel like everyone just sort of ends up undercutting themselves. And then it just, it just leads to resentment on both sides. I mean, it would lead to resentment for us for, for saying yes to a job that, you know, we're not profiting on and it would lead to resentment from them because, you know, they're not going to get as great of a product. So it's just a matter of operating at, I think, a higher level and just saying, hey, let's both pony up together and jump into this. And that's a position that I just want to make, make clear. That's a position that you've worked yourself into because you've been in business since 2014 and you have gone through the race to the bottom at the beginning when you're just doing portfolio work and got to the point now that, that you can set your own prices. Let's, let's talk about pricing because that is always the stumbling block for everybody and how you were doing it in the beginning and how your pricing has changed to now being able to set your own limitations on how low you want the price to go. I think it's an interesting question because it's something that I've like Googled a lot and tried to like figure out. Um, and I feel like everyone kind of like doesn't really like to share what their formula is, but I have no problem sharing. I, I believe in, you know, high tide raises all, all ships. So let's all, let's all increase our prices. Um, so for me, it's like really simple. I used to, you know, when I did landscaping jobs and other stuff, I would always just factor labor materials and then add a markup to it. That's sort of what I do with furniture. Um, what I used to for a while, um, when it was just me building it, I would calculate whatever the board foot is, uh, get a rough price of what the materials are going to be, estimate what, you know, the hours are going to be, multiply that by, you know, whatever the hourly rate is of the person making it. And then before I would just tack on, like, I'd be like, I'll just add a thousand dollars. And I'm like, all right, cool. So if I just make, 
you know, if it's a table, I'll add in a thousand dollars. If it's a coffee table, I'll add on like 300. So I just had these like fixed numbers. Um, but last year I decided to jump into like actually using, well, I guess two years ago, jumped into like actually looking at what percents and what the percents need to be. Uh, so I know at the end of a project, I need to profit 40% in order to make a net of 20 all the way at the end. So usually I'll multiply by a factor of 1.66. That gives you about a 40% profit margin on each piece. The idea of, of pricing is incredibly hard. And there's also some things that people learn as they grow their company. One is employees and hiring employees. And I want to get into that. But I also want to talk to you about a kind of an, an interesting technical part of a business. As you grow, you need to get a work vehicle, not just your own personal vehicle. You need to get a vehicle for the business, a van or, or something along those lines. Can you talk us through when you decided to make that move, why you decided to make that move and how you went about actually purchasing that for your business? Uh, when I first started, I was actually just using my dad's minivan to like deliver, <laughs> deliver everything. Um, and then eventually it got to a point where I was just like, Hey, like this isn't sustainable. I had to keep driving to the suburbs to pick it up. It was like breaking down on me. Um, so I just decided to like start looking on Craigslist and Facebook marketplace. And I found this old beat up, you know, Dodge pickup truck. It was like $5,000, I think. So that was the first vehicle that I purchased. Cause I just like knew that you know, I was like, okay, I could $5,000 seems reasonable. Um, so that was something I had for probably three years, we did deliveries in open bed pickup trucks for for a long time, for a long time. So on days, you know, it's raining here today, on a day like today, we would have had to cancel our delivery because it was raining or snowing or whatever. Um, and then last year, actually, was the year I finally decided to get a sprinter delivery van now. Um, because I was like, hey, winter's coming, I need to, you know, be able to deliver through the winter time. And what I did was I just did kind of a basic cost analysis. Uh, I didn't pay cash for it. Uh, I mean, if you have enough cash to pay for it, I guess maybe do that, but it's probably better to hold on to the cash. So I financed it and figured out what it was per month and then worked backwards from there to say, hey, you know, I need to sell X amount of tables or what I actually did was increase my delivery fee because I figured that would cover the Sprinter van. So I just increased the delivery fee to say, hey, each delivery, I need to be making X amount of dollars if I'm delivering, doing three or four deliveries a month or however many I'm doing a month. I think we're doing like eight or so every Wednesday and Friday. Um, and then I just basically broke it down that way. So I was like, hey, if I charge, add, you know, an extra $100 to each delivery, that's an extra 800 bucks a month that basically pays for the van. Let's talk about your employees and how you're structuring that. When you were just starting out, it was you. And then you decided to make that jump to one employee, then another, then another. And as you grow your team, I'm sure you didn't think about it in the beginning. But once you had all these people, you had to start thinking about how you were structuring who reports to who, who reports to you, what oversight you have in day to day. How is that all structured now? And what are some things that you wish you knew about employees when you first started hiring people that you're now putting in place as you grow your team? So when I first started hiring people, I was hiring everyone as like 1099s, uh, which was kind of a big, I mean, it was good as far as like making money, but it was bad from a business point of view because I got used to that. Uh, when you're doing 1099s, 
um, you know, you don't have to pay taxes on them. You don't have to pay uh, workers' compensation. So there's all these other costs that come when you actually turn them into actual employees. So when I brought them on as actual employees, that was like a total, like, that like rocked my world. I, I think that year we reported like, I don't know, like negative $10,000 because I just didn't know how to do it. Um, so once I started figuring out, okay, an actual employee who is making $25 an hour actually is costing the company X is really when I started to dial in like how that, how that worked. Um, and with each project, it's, it's a cost basis. So I'm, I'm basing each project on hours so I could figure out, you know, if I have X amount of jobs, I can afford to pay X amount of people. Um, but as far as like structure goes, I recently um, started restructuring it so I could take a little bit more time and focus on growing the business. So I don't actually build anything anymore. I mean, I do. I do stuff like for my house and for fun and stuff like that. So I'm basically overseeing. Um, I promoted one of my guys who had been with me pretty much the longest at the company. He is now operations. Uh, so he oversees, we call it um, basically everything that's macro. So once a, a job comes in through me, I pass it to him. And then he controls like basically any contact with the client outside and then basically gives them a rundown of when to expect a delivery. He then oversees the warehouse people and I have a warehouse manager and essentially a foreman. Uh, we call him head of tables. And then we have another department, head of cabinetry, and they're all responsible for their own queues. So each project's built um, kind of one at a time. So every person has their own project that they're working on. And then once the project's complete, they report back to the operations manager and the operations says, okay, time for delivery. And then it goes out the door. So we kind of created this whole like web and structure. And before I was just kind of like a hippie mentality, like, hey man, let's just Lord of the Flies and figure it out. But that didn't really seem to work. And I noticed that employees actually preferred the structure because they knew who they had to report to. They knew what they were being held responsible for. They knew like, you know, we could hold each other accountable for different things. So as anti-structure as I was, I came back full circle and was like, hey, you know, you actually need to have a structure in order for it to work. Success is a very relative term, but you are a successful furniture business owner. You have a long running furniture company. You have employees, you pay their salaries, you have a lot of happy clients out there. What's some advice that you could give to people who are listening, who are either starting a furniture company from scratch or have been doing it for a while and want to get better? So there's like a few things. I mean, I think one of them is definitely uh, persistence. Um, just keep keep moving forward. And another thing I kind of learned too is like, it's really hard to build and sell a company. I mean, if you want to continue to build and just kind of are cool with just being one or two people, like that's totally fine. And, you know, kind of be, you need to be self-aware of like, hey, where do you want to go and what are your goals? For me, my goals have always been to scale and to get bigger and to bigger. Uh, and I knew that wasn't going to happen with me focusing on building the things. It was better if I was building the business, you know, so working on the business instead of in the business was one of the big switches I made as far as like scaling goes. And I think the other part is kind of like surround yourself with people that are better than you, uh, you know, listen to podcasts, find resources, connect with other people. I'm actually in a group chat with um, some other guys that you've had on here with Josh and Ryan from uh, a carpenter's son and lumber to love. Um, and we kind of just have like a group chat going where we text with each other and ask, you know, each other advice on different things. So I think it's always helpful to be always learning really. No matter what level you are at in your business, 
there's always going to be somebody who's a step ahead of you, who's already done it. And maybe you don't take their advice to heart and do that exact thing, but you can listen to it and you can learn from it. So I couldn't have said it better myself, listening to the community, forming bonds. That's that's a great way to run your business. And that leads me to thanking you for being a part of this community and sharing your story and sharing advice. And I really do appreciate you sharing your success and the hardships that you've had along the way. So thank you very much for being on the show. And I truly appreciate your time. Thanks so much for having me. And thanks for doing this podcast. I think it's really helpful for a lot of people. Thank you so much for listening to the show. If you liked what you heard and you got value out of it, please think about leaving a review and subscribing wherever you listen. To learn more about the series, please visit buildingafurniturebrand.com and feel free to reach out anytime with questions or guest suggestions to hello at buildingafurniturebrand.com. You can find me at The Build with Ethan on Instagram. Hope you enjoyed the show and can't wait to bring you the next one.